Good morning, church. The first uh, clue that this doesn't belong to me is that this is an arm wrestling medal <laughs> from 2003, and I'm not going to fool anybody with that. Um, Monica just put this over on my head here around my neck during worship, and uh, are you an arm wrestling champ of 2003? Oh my goodness. Don't mess with Monica. Uh, but I asked her, it's silver, why isn't it gold? And she said, um, your sermons are too long for gold, so. It's a... Fair enough. Almost got bronze. Uh, I'm kind of on shaky ground here a little bit. Um, good. Well, yeah, when I was 15, I took a trip to China, and I came back kind of with an interest in all things Chinese, so I started this Chinese language club. And I don't remember much Chinese, but I do remember how to count to 10, I think, in Chinese. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, okay? But uh, <laughs> Ling Yi Er San Sir Wu Liao Qi Ba Xiu Shi. Yeah, that's, uh, that probably wasn't it at all, but you would have no idea. Um, the only other thing I remember is how to sing happy birthday in Chinese. And um, I mentioned that in first service, and then after the service, someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, it's his birthday today, would you sing him happy birthday in Chinese? And so I sang him happy birthday in Chinese. Um, it was awkward. Um, so there's this movie called Nacho Libre, it came out a bunch of years ago, maybe you've seen it, this is not a movie recommendation. Kind of lowbrow humor. Jack Black is the main character. Uh, in this movie, Jack Black is a Mexican wrestler called the Luchador, and he has a bit of a spiritual awakening. He moves into this monastery, and um, th in this scene, he's having a conversation with another wrestler friend of him, and Jack Black um, says, and I'm not trying to mimic the accent, he says to his friend, he says, I'm a little concerned about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? His friend looks up, he's eat eating a salad, he says, because I never got around to it, Okay. I don't know why you're always judging me. Jack Black sneaks behind him, grabs a bowl of water as his friend's eating salad, puts it in front of his face, smashes his face into the water and says, I baptize you. <laughs> kind of a funny scene. But the other question is, is he baptized? Did he just get baptized? N now you might think, well, no, because it was just his face, right? I mean, it has to be the whole body to get baptized, some of you might say. Uh, but just imagine you're at a pool there, playing around, you have a friend, he jumps in the pool, he pushes your head under the water and says, I baptize you, and he, you come up and he says, you're baptized now. Would you be baptized? Maybe that's, maybe that's happened to you. I've, I've seen some of my kids and church kids playing baptism in Kinsman Lake. Did they just, did they just get baptized? What is the difference between a baptism and a bath? We're going to talk a bit about baptism this morning because we're, we're continuing our series called Better Together, which has been our fall series, which after COVID disrupted all our gatherings, we're kind of coming back and we're asking ourselves again in a fresh way, why do we gather? And what does God call us to do when we gather? Do we do what we do just out of tradition, human invention? And you know, God has given us direction. In fact, he's given us this beautiful picture of what it looks like for the church to be together. 
Uh, it's the very first description of the church. We find it in Acts chapter 2, and we've looked at this passage through this series, and we've kind of used it at our, as our guide to look at what it is we are called to do together as a church in, in the ways that we are better. And so um, this has been the basis of our preaching series. I'm not going to read all the, 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 the verses here, but Acts chapter 4, verse 42, it said that we're to fellowship. The first church was devoted to fellowship. So we talked about how we are called together for the sake of community. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We had a message about why we gather together to listen to the word of God read and preached because they did uh, on, on day one of the church. It says they were devoted to prayer together. So we took a Sunday, we looked at what it means for us to pray together. It says that uh, they gave their possessions to anyone who had need when they came together. And so we took two Sundays to look at what that means for us. We have various possessions, financial possessions, uh, non-financial possessions. So we talked about why we serve together and why we give together, why the First Church did that. A couple Sundays ago, um, Daniel preached about why we sing together. And you probably never heard a message on why we sing when we gather. Why do we do that? And you know, the Bible commands us to sing together. And from day one of the church, they gathered and they praised God at, and, and definitely in singing. And that was going to be the end of our sermon series, but then we decided to extend it two weeks because we actually discovered there's two more things in this description of the first church that they did together. We thought, well, we might as well look at these two other things. It says that they broke bread together. Next Sunday, we're going to look at that because next Sunday, last Sunday of the month, is our communion Sunday. And for the first time in over two and a half years, we're actually going to take communion. We're going to come to the Lord's table together in the way we used to before COVID forced us to go back to the little kits with the foils and the nasty tasting grape juice, right? So yeah, we're going back to that. And uh, that will be nice to do that in a, just a more meaningful way. And, and we're going to couple that with taking a look at what does it mean to be devoted to the breaking of bread together? But there's one more thing it shows here that the church did together. It's actually not in these verses. It's in the verses that come directly before these, and it's um, baptism. They baptized together as the church. And I know there's two groups of people here right now. There's people who are baptized, and there's people who aren't baptized. I don't think there's a third group. I think everybody falls into one of those two categories. And I just want to say, whatever those categories you fall into this morning, God has something to say to you. God wants to speak to you. So... You know, if you're already baptized, don't, don't just kind of turn off the brain and think about the football game or lunch, right? God has something to speak to both those of us who are baptized and those who are not yet baptized. But let's look at this description here. We find in Acts 2, verses 37, just setting the scene. This is the very first day of the church, right? Those first followers of Jesus were gathered together. God fulfilled His promise. He poured out His Holy Spirit on them. Something happened that kind of gathered a large crowd. There was a bit of a stir. Something is happening here to these disciples of Jesus, and that gives an opportunity for Peter to preach the gospel to this huge crowd. So he shares with them the good news of Jesus Christ, which kind of ends with this statement, his message in verse 36, where Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Messiah was the Old Testament word, which meant that one that God had promised to send, the anointed one who would deliver God's people from their sins, who would be their Savior. Jesus is Lord and Savior, Peter says. 
And how do people respond? It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other disciples, brothers, what shall we do? Which is exactly the right question. I mean, if what Peter's just said is true, that Jesus Christ, in his death and in his resurrection, has become for the world both Lord and Savior, the only right question to ask is, what should I do with that? How do I respond? And Peter answers that question. It says, he replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. What do we do? Repent and be baptized. He says two things now. You might have expected the first and maybe not so much the second. The first thing he says is, repent. Now, that's just a churchy word. That means to change directions, literally. It means to go in the other direction. So he's saying, you need to change course here. And I think this repentance, we're going to see, looks two different ways. It means to turn, first of all, to turn from sin to righteousness, to turn from living for yourself and living just for your own will to living for God and living for His will. From self-centered to God-centered. That's the first turning in repentance, from sin to righteousness. But what, but what Peter's also saying here is you need to turn not just from your sin, that is the wrong you do, you need to turn from your attempts to be righteous in your own efforts. You need to turn from self-righteousness to think that you can even win God's favor and acceptance through your efforts to be good enough. That's a faulty way of thinking. You need to turn from trying and striving to be good enough for God to trusting that Jesus has been good enough on your behalf. And that's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has done everything that is necessary for us to know God's forgiveness, His grace, and eternal life. He has secured it for us in His life, death, and resurrection, and we receive that life through faith in what Jesus has done on our behalf and not, not faith in our own efforts to try to secure God's favor. And so he says, you need not just to turn from your own sin, but you need to turn from this, your attempts to be good enough for God. And instead, believe in Jesus for your salvation and for the forgiveness of your sins, for your life. But then he says something else. He says, repent and be baptized. And it might surprise you that he throws that in there like right away in this short little answer to what must we do. He says, repent and be baptized. Now, why would he say that? Is Peter saying that, listen, you gotta, you gotta put your faith in Jesus and you need to be baptized in order to be saved? Do we need to be baptized to be saved? Is it kind of like there's these two ingredients Remember chemistry class? There's these two things, and if you mix them together, it creates a chemical reaction, and alone they're kind of inert. Is that what it is? Repentance and this act of baptism, and when you bring them together, there's this chemical reaction that leads to salvation? I don't think that's what he's saying, because we, we see, I mean, the thief who died beside Jesus on the cross put his faith in Jesus, was not baptized, and Jesus said, this very day you will be with me in paradise in heaven. In Acts chapter 8, we see this guy named Simon Magus, who is baptized, but then we find out he's not even a Christian at all, even though he's baptized. So what Peter is not saying is you need to be baptized in order to be saved, but he does say repent 
and be baptized. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Well, I think it's because of this. I think what he's saying is to follow Jesus at all is to follow Jesus publicly. To follow Jesus is to follow Jesus publicly. Jesus will not allow us to be secret, private followers. We need to follow him in the open. This is what he gets at, Jesus, in in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32. He says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And it's just Jesus' way of saying, if you're going to follow me, you, you need to follow me publicly, not just privately. So if repentance, if faith in Jesus is this interactivity that unites us to Jesus Christ, that secures for us salvation from God, forgiveness of our sins, eternal life, if if that's something that happens by faith in Jesus Christ, this interactivity, baptism then is that outer declaration that says, I have put my faith in Jesus. It's the outward sign signifying that I belong to Christ through faith. So baptism simply is just faith going public. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you have to follow me publicly. Baptism is faith going public. It's like putting on a jersey to show that you are on this team. And so in Acts chapter 2 there, baptism immediately followed faith. It says 3,000 believed. Not everybody believed, but 3,000 believed. They repented of their sin, put their faith in Jesus, And then immediately, and what a sight that would have been, 3,000 of them would have gone into water and the apostles would have baptized them and it says 3,000 were baptized on that day and added to their number. Added to whose number? Added to the church. When they came out and said, I believe in Jesus. This is why whenever Paul writes about baptism in Romans 6, where we'll go in a minute, Colossians chapter 2, He writes always assuming that the people he's writing to in the church have been baptized because back from day one there, an unbaptized disciple of Jesus was not a category because you repented and then the the, the next step was to declare your faith publicly, your allegiance to Jesus in this act that was not a human invention, it was not church tradition, it was something that God gave to the church called baptism. And so what Paul is showing and what Peter shows us is that baptism is an essential act for a Christian. It's not an option, it's not a recommendation, but it's a command, a command of Jesus for all who would follow Him. But why? Like, why? What does it really mean? Why baptism? There's a story, maybe it's just a legend, I don't know. St. Patrick, you know, he brought the gospel to the Irish and uh, he converted many of the people of Ireland uh, to, uh, to the Christian faith. And one of them was King Angus. And uh, history records that on this day when St. Patrick is going to baptize King Angus, they go into the water. And St. Patrick's a bit of an aged man who's leaning on his staff in the water. And what he doesn't know is the tip of his staff is resting on King Angus's foot. And it actually pierces his foot. But in the moment, King Ang- he doesn't cry out. He just kind of grins and bites his lip. 
and is baptized by St. Patrick. And when they come out of the water, Patrick knows there's blood coming out of his foot and he realizes what had happened and he felt so bad and he said, King, why did you suffer uh, this in silence? And, and King Angus said, I just thought it was part of the ritual. <laughs> I just thought that's what... It, well, yeah, like, what is this? Anyway, this is kind of weird. We haven't seen this before. What is, what is, what is baptism? What does this mean? This act of being immersed in water. Well, Paul will show us it means at least these two things, according to what he says in Romans chapter 6. And you can um, go there with me if you have your Bible. Romans chapter 6. This is probably the biggest chunk in the Scriptures about baptism, about what it means. And Paul will show us it signifies at least two things. It signifies our petition to God, and it signifies our promise to God. These two things we'll see here. Our petition to God. Look what Paul says in Romans 6, verses 3 to 5. He says, Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. What Paul is saying there is this act of going under the water and coming up is a way of um, portraying, dramatizing a believer's union with Jesus Christ in the burial and in the resurrection of Jesus and a way of acknowledging that I am a sinner in need of the mercy of God, right? But through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, I, through faith in Him, am united to Him and so that His resurrection becomes my resurrection. His life has become my life. In faith, we are united to Christ and we experience all the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection and baptism mimics that, right? I'm a, I'm a sinner in need of God's mercy and I'm not trusting in myself, but I have put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, for my life, and in Him, I find life. In Him, I find life. And in nowhere else and in nothing else but in Jesus Christ who died and rose again, in whom I put my faith. And so baptism, this act, is this petition of faith in what Jesus has done and what we receive through faith in Him. But it's also a promise to God. Now, some of these believers, they, they had maybe got the wrong idea. So they had heard about God's grace, which is amazing. And, and they said, well, I mean, if we are right with God, not because of anything we do, if we can't add to what God has done or taken anything away from it, but we are saved by, by grace and God's grace alone as the basis of our life, does it really matter how I live? Does it really matter? And so Paul addresses that. He says in chapter one or chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then verse six, for we know that our... Our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And now in verse 11, listen to this. 
In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires, and do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under law, you are under grace. What he's saying there is he's saying that baptism when we go down into the water and come back up, it's, it's an offering to God. It's a vow, a promise. It's our way, the way that God has given us to say and to declare in His sight, but in the sight of all around, that we are devoting our full self to God, not just part of us. Every part of me, my mind is devoted to God, my heart, my lips, my eyes, my hands, my private parts, my whole life is devoted to God for righteousness. It is this offering, a vow. Paul says, that's what this means, this act of going under and coming up. It mimics that offering. And so in the 1500s or 1400s, maybe Ivan the Great, he was a Tsar of Russia. He wanted to marry this Greek princess, but he had to go to Greece and... Um, he had to be baptized into the Greek Orthodox Church before he could do that. So he went, and he brought like 500 of his personal guard, his soldiers, uh, with him. And uh, when it came time for the baptism in the Aegean Sea, the 500 soldiers wanted to be baptized with him as, as kind of a, a, a sign of allegiance to their king, right? They wanted to do this with him. And so they prepared these 500 soldiers to be bap baptized in the sea along with uh, uh, Ivan uh, but on the day of the baptism, there was this problem because all these sh soldiers showed up wearing all of their military regalia, you know, and their sword, their ribbons, everything like that. And that was a problem because the church prohibited professional soldiers from being baptized, right? Because then, like, if you were a soldier, you had to take an oath. You were devoted to the king, and, 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 and you would do whatever he said. Your sword arm and your sword belonged to the king to kill if he said so. And so they wouldn't... Uh, they prohibited soldiers from, from uh, being baptized because you had to renounce your commitment to bloodshed. You had to give that up. You couldn't be both a killer and a church member. And so there was this problem on this day there by the Aegean Sea, but that problem was solved as those 500 soldiers went into the sea as they were about to be baptized by the priests. Each one of them, they took their sword out of the sheath and they held it up high. And as they were lowered into the sea, their whole body went under except their sword and their sword arm, their fighting arm. And it was a way of saying, God has all of me except this piece. This piece that doesn't go under, yeah, that belongs to, to the king. And you know what? They actually had the picture right. They actually understood what it meant. You know, they weren't baptized. They did not fully devote themselves to God, every part of them, as instruments of righteousness, but they understood what it meant to be baptized, to go into the water and to come up, is to declare to God and those around us, we are offering our whole selves to God for His glory, for the sake of righteousness. 
So in baptism, a person publicly declares these two things. It's the way that God has given us to say we are alive through Christ, not through ourselves, not through anything else. We are alive through Christ. And it's also the way that we say we will live for Christ, totally devoted to Him. That's what this act means that God has given to us, that He has commanded of all who follow Jesus. Maybe you've noticed that baptism takes two. Have you ever noticed that? You ever thought of that? Why does there need to be the second person? Can't I just baptize myself? Isn't it just about me saying that to God, offering myself to God? Expressing my faith in God? Like, can't I just do that myself? And yet you'll notice that baptism always involved two right from day one to today. Yeah, why is that? Why can't you baptize yourself? And then who does that other person have to be? I mean, can it be your cousin Vinny? Does anybody have a cousin named Vinny? Someone must have a cousin named Vinny. Who does that second person need to be? Well, it doesn't need to be a person so much as it needs... What the Bible will show us is that second party that is acting in baptism is affirming, is the church, is the church. Now, this message is kind of why we're better together, what we're supposed to do together, and one of the things that we see here is we are called to baptize together. That doesn't mean that it has to be in a particular building, at a particular time, done by a particular person, but what it does mean is that God's intent is that in the act of baptism, it's not just one person Right? declaring something between themselves and God, but it's the church speaking on God's behalf, right? affirming the faith of another. And this is what we see in Matthew chapter 16, which is a really famous passage. This is called the good confession, you know, where, where Jesus asks his followers, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and Jesus commends him. And then Jesus famously says in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. You ever heard that? I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell, who's going to build it? I'm going to build it. Who's I? Jesus. I'm going to build my church. You're not going to build it. No one's going to stop me from building it. I'm going to build my church. And not hell itself can stop me. And we often stop there. And we don't read the next verse, but it's interesting. Jesus continues, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the first church. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom and what is, he, what is he saying there? You're going to bind and you're going to loose and it's going to be, you know, what you bind on, on earth is going to be bound in heaven. What he's, Jesus is saying is, I'm going to build it, but I'm building it through you. I am delegating to you, church. I'm delegating to you my authority to speak and act on my behalf. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. What is a key? A key is something that kind of like is all about the door the entrance into, or maybe the exit out of. Because just two chapters later in Matthew 18, we'll get a better sense of what Jesus means because it's a particular uh, situation. And again, we have another famous passage, Matthew 18, verse 20, where Jesus says, where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And you've heard that before, haven't you, most of you? 
And what have you thought that means? Where two or three are gathered, there I am with them, Jesus says. And we've often understood that to be, isn't that nice? When I gather together with my friend and we have coffee and when we talk and when we pray together, God is with us in a way that if I was just doing this by myself, he wouldn't be there. Um, you know, there, there's something more powerful happening when two people are praying together. Yeah, yeah, that's not, it's not that it isn't true, but that's not what Jesus is necessarily meaning in this, in, in this context there because if you... Go back a few verses, you understand what he's saying. He'll say in verse 15, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, to turn from their kind of public defiant sin, tell it to the church. I mean, Jesus doesn't often use the word church, just a few times. But here's another time he talks about the church. If they, list, if, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, which isn't to say be mean to them. Those aren't pejoratives. What he's saying is treat them like they're an unbeliever because they're acting like an unbeliever. He's saying this is, this is your job, church. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There he says it again. Again, I tell you that if two or three of you agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. And that's all just another way of Jesus saying this, this idea. He has delegated to his church authority and responsibility to speak and to act on his behalf. Not that we can perfectly know the hearts of people, not that we don't make mistakes, but this is what his design is for the church. We would be His representatives on speaking and acting in His name. And so you'll find that Jesus never baptized. It says that very plainly in Mark chapter 4. Jesus never baptized, but He got His disciples to do it. Why did Jesus not baptize? Because it wasn't Jesus' job to baptize. It was the, the job of the church, the followers of Jesus right, to affirm, to come alongside and affirm others in baptism that they are a part of the team. They are a part of the family of God. So do you know that's what you're doing? Like when someone gets baptized here and you're sitting down there and it's nice and they hear a story and then you clap, you're not an audience. You're not a witness. You are the church. We are the church Affirm, playing the, God, the role God called us to play in affirming right, the faith of someone in Christ in that act of baptism. Affirming that they belong to God and that they belong or join to His people, the church, because baptism takes two. So Jesus never baptized. That's why I said at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's your mission. So coming back to that jersey analogy, just because you put on a jersey doesn't mean that you're a part of the team, right? Like, look at this. I don't even know how to skate. You know how I stop? Like I, I, take, I take a wide circle and then it just becomes a smaller circle and then when I get close to the middle then I fall over. <laughs> That's fine. But you know, you, you can stand up and put your head in something. You, you can put on a jersey but putting on a jersey doesn't necessarily mean that you're a part of the team. Who affirms, who affirms 
right, that you are a part of the Jesus team. Well, God has called the church to affirm others in His name in the act of baptism because baptism takes two. It's two people saying something. It's not just one person saying something. It's two people, right? The person being baptized speaks to God and to the church, and the church speaks for God to the individual that says, you are on the Jesus' team. You are joined to His people, right? Because to be joined, to be united to Christ is to be united to His people. So, why baptism is not just a private, personal act between a person and God. It's between a person, God, and His people. And that's why we baptize together. That's why it takes two, because baptism signifies a joining together with the people of God as well as a uniting with Christ through faith. So I said there's two groups here, kind of bringing this to a close. There's the unbaptized and the baptized. And if, and if you're in that first group this morning, you're unbaptized or you're, you're not even sure. Because <clears throat> something happened at some point, but you don't even remember it, and you're not sure, like, was that? Was that this? If, if, if you're unbaptized, I guess the very first thing I would say is, the question I would ask is, have you repented? The very first thing Peter says to the question, what shall we do is repent. Have you turned from your sin? Have you turned from living your life your way? Have you turned to God and put your faith fully in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, that's what you need to do today. You need to give your life to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And you can do it today. You can do it today. It takes a moment to come to God in prayer and to repent and to turn from your way and your sin and to give your life to God and put your trust in Jesus. It takes a moment, and you can do that today. And you can speak with someone about that. You can speak with myself. There's a, a prayer team available after the service. If you would go find them, they would love to talk with you and help you. But that's the first thing you may need to do this morning if you're unbaptized to put this into practice. But if you have... Um, put your trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then your next step is to be baptized. It's your next step. That's the command of Jesus. And, and this is good. And, and I know sometimes that's a little bit scary and that deters some people, but what a good thing, what a blessing that Jesus has not left it up to us to muster our own courage, to muster our boldness, to muster creativity, to figure out how we're supposed to declare ourselves a Christian, that we've put our faith in Him. He has given it to us. And calls us to, to obey. So if, if you're not baptized, maybe that's your next step. You just need to be baptized. And I know there, there's a few questions about that or objections. Some people think, well, isn't it too soon? I just don't know enough. I'm not holy enough. I remember the first guy baptized, Ken McClelland, 78 years old, couldn't kick smoking. He was so down on himself. God must just be judging him. He's not good enough for God because he can't quit smoking. And I remember like talking with him and when he realized what, how God's grace worked and what forgiveness looks like and, and, how, and how we have our life through faith in Jesus and that alone and by God's grace. And that was a beautiful thing. I mean, back then we made him wear choir robes. 78-year-old man with like ruffled sleeves walking into the water. Kind of goofy looking. We don't make you do that anymore. He died not long after that. 
But some people might think it's, it's too soon. I don't know enough. I'm not holy enough. It's not too soon. Where you see baptism, it's repent and be baptized. And some of you think, okay, well, yeah, it's maybe too late for me because I repented a long time ago. I mean, it, it's been a couple of decades. If I could turn back time when I was a teenager or a young adult or whatever, I would have done it. But Jesus, for goodness sakes, I'm a Sunday school teacher now. That would be kind of embarrassing, wouldn't it? I mean, what, is there really a point at this point? And so I would say, yeah, there's a point. It's never too late to obey. It's never too late to obey. Better late than never. There is blessing in obedience, not just for you, but for those around you. It's not too late for you. So if that's a step that you need to take here this morning, take it. What would that look like? I mean, just talking with myself, talking to a ministry leader, um, going online to our, our event sign-up. There's a button there. If you're interested in baptism, you can click that button and we'll get in touch with you. But if you're unbaptized this morning, maybe that's something you need to consider. To repent and be baptized. This is the command of God for you. For those of you who are baptized here this morning, what does that mean for us? I mean, I, th I think it's good to think back of that time when we went into the water. If you're baptized, can you think back that far? I know some of you are like, that was a long time ago. That was decades ago. I can remember the day for me when I got in that water. It was at Heights Baptist Church in Medicine Hat, Alberta. My dad was the pastor, so he was in the water with me. I still remember standing in there. I remember going down. I remember coming up. And it's good for me to think of that time. What was I doing? What did that mean? What does that mean for me today? I mean, what, what that meant for me, of course, again, is baptism means I'm united to Christ through faith in His death and resurrection alone. Life is found through faith in Him. And so maybe as a baptized person, I need to ask myself, am I trying to find my life anywhere other than in Christ? Am I trying to find my rest? Am I trying to find my joy for anywhere else but in Jesus Christ and the life that is freely given to me through faith in Him? Am I carrying guilt for sin that God has already forgiven but that just kind of cripples me and I'm down on myself? Am I trying to find life anywhere other than in Jesus Christ, the only one in whom life is found? What would it look like for me to kind of Look to Him for that rest, that hope, that peace. And then when I got into the water and was baptized, I was offering my whole self to God as an instrument of righteousness, as Paul says. So then I maybe need to ask myself, man, Rusty, is there a part of you that's kind of living unbaptized? Right? Is, is, is there some part of you that you're withholding from God? Maybe some, maybe some sin that you're just not willing to deal with or confront. There's just some part of you that's not fully surrendered to God. As someone who's baptized, that's a good question for you this morning. Are you, are you living fully devoted to God? Every part of you. Maybe you need to offer yourself or some part of yourself anew again today. How is God speaking to you? where you're at. I want you to ask him that question. We're going to come to God in prayer right now before we close with one final song. And let's just talk to him and just invite God to tell us what it looks like for us to obey um, 
what we have just heard. So let's pray. God, would you speak to us? As we've come to your word, would you just show us what it is that this means for us? Would you remind us all that belongs to us through Jesus Christ, all that we've received just by putting our faith in him? Lord, just give us a fresh sense of all that belongs to us through your son, all these benefits that we didn't earn so we can't lose, we can't add anything to, that we have a life that nothing can separate us from, that we have your love that nothing can separate us from. God, would you show us what it looks like for us to live a life devoted to you? If there's someone in this room or people here that need to take that step of obedience and be baptized, would you just give them the courage to take that step, which will be a blessing to them and to yourself and all around them? And would, if there's someone here this morning that needs to actually give their life to you, they need to repent and, and they need to change direction and receive this gift of life that you give through faith in your son, would you just give them the courage to come forward and to speak to someone about that? Lord, for those of us who've maybe been following you for a while and been baptized, Lord, we just, we want to anew, we want to offer ourselves to you again. We belong to you. Apart from you, we have no good thing. Lord, if there's anything in our lives that just isn't in alignment with your will, anything that we need just to bring to you and surrender to you again, Lord, would you show us what that is and would you just give us the faith and the courage to kind of offer our whole selves to you, God, for the sake of righteousness and for the sake of your glory. We want to be a people devoted to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.